yeah, to, to turn to Middlebury, I mean, it, you know, so I care about hate speech, but I, I also think that any kind of concern we have about the ways in which war, words wound has to be by way of an analogy with, you know, the way in which swords wound. <laughs> This week, I'm speaking with my very good friend, Dr. Teresa Bejan, who teaches at Oxford University. She previously taught at the University of Toronto. And earlier this year, Teresa found herself in the unlikely but happy position of being a political philosopher uh, with a book which was widely discussed and celebrated in the popular media, including the New York Times and the Washington Post. Her book, Mere Civility, which discusses the problem of civil discourse in conditions of fundamental disagreement in an open, liberal, and diverse society, uh, struck an obvious chord, it seems, in an America which seems to be extraordinarily polarized. Upon re-listening to our conversation, however, I realized that Teresa and I sort of get right into the thick of things, and perhaps we could have done a better job of laying out some of the fundamental points her books make. So I thought that I'd do that right now, briefly, and I will also link in the show notes to New York Times article, uh, How to Be Civil in an Uncivil world, world, which gives a good brief overview of Teresa's book. So Mere Civility, uh, Teresa Bijan's book, looks at contrasting views on how to maintain peaceful disagreement um, through contrasting three seminal uh, early modern liberal thinkers, John Locke, Thomas Hobbes, and Roger Williams. For John Locke, peaceful coexistence does imply that participants in society cultivate an ethic of mutual charity and appreciation. For Hobbes, um, the solution to the problem of maintaining disagreement while also maintaining civic peace was civil silence. He didn't care how hateful or offensive your thoughts were, but membership in society required that you keep them to yourself. But for the 17th century founder of Rhode Island, Roger Williams, civility should be seen as mere, mere civility, and it was based on mutual contempt rather than mutual respect, a sort of baseline of acknowledging and tolerating ongoing disagreement. This seems to be an obviously good approach, which both preserves civic peace as well as permits a healthy diversity of viewpoints. Um, And in the last 10 minutes or so of the podcast, Teresa and I discuss university free speech issues. And Teresa makes a point that I think is very important, uh, which compares purveyors of identity politics and their claims of having some type of privileged access to the truth. So to break that down. That might be the idea that only women can speak authentically about women's experiences and so on. And she compares that to earlier religious appeals to authority as a sole basis for knowing. And she contrasts this with the posture of what she calls epistemic humility, the idea that your positions are open to revision and and conversation and contradiction. I thought it was a really interesting point and particularly relevant this week in Canada, where two stalwarts of Canadian journalism, um, Hal Needs Vicky and Jonathan Kay, both resigned due to related skirmishes over identity politics and cultural appropriation. And I won't say anything more about that now. Um, so in- please enjoy my conversation with uh, Dr. Teresa Bejan. 
Um, okay, so I'm here with my very good friend, Professor uh, Teresa Bejan. Um, and Teresa is American, um, but she currently uh, teaches at Oxford in the UK. However, we sort of consider her um, an honorary Canadian, not just because... <laughs> She taught at the University of Toronto, which is when uh, she and I became friends. Um, but also, um, much to our delight, you you keep coming back, um, including <laughs> in December for New Year's in Toronto, which really takes commitment to Canada and or at least its peoples. Um, so, so yes, we consider you an honorary Canadian, Professor Bijan. Well- Thank you, and I'm I'm a devoted uh, honorary Canadian. I take I, I take my permanent residency uh, in, in absentia very seriously. Well, that's that's to our benefit. Um, so thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Um, and of course, we're here primarily to talk about your new book, Mere Civility, um, which I, I know that you've been working on this project and early modern debates over civility and religious toleration for the last few years. So you couldn't possibly have known when you set out um, on this project how incredibly timely and relevant it would be at the time that it actually came out. Yeah, no, that has been, um, I mean, people have been sort of saying to me, oh, you know, did you, you know, did you, obviously there was no way to plan it. But, um, but I, I mean, the main thing I would say is simply to remind people that you know, t- timely academic monographs begin as untimely dissertations and such, mm-hmm. such was my case. You know, I actually started working on the, you know, the, the dissertation that would become the book Mere Civility, you know, just under eight years ago. So really a lot of the, um, a lot of the sort of complaints that you're hearing right now, especially since um, the election and the inauguration of President Trump, I'm just I'm trying to remind people that um, you know, the crisis of civility is really perennial mm-hmm. in in American politics. Um, but it is certainly true that the uh, you know the, the, the book came out at a time when uh, the complaints about a crisis of civility were he- reaching perhaps new hysterical heights. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and we're going to get into the book and what it does and the the various sort of historical components. Um, But I guess that that is one of your points, that the crisis of civility is a perennial problem. There is nothing truly new under the sun, although, of course, everything comes back, but it's kind of different each time it comes back. Um, But certainly one of the complaints we hear is that the crisis of civility is a function of the quote unquote, the Internet comments um, mm-hmm. crisis and globalization. And I think one of the things that you want to say is, no, that's actually not true. Um, and mm-hmm. just look at early modern uh, religious toleration debates as proof of that. Right, exactly. I mean, it's it's to say, <laughs> just, you know, following you, uh, Aristotle and Ecclesiastes, right? <laughs> there truly is nothing new <laughs> under the sun. But that isn't to say, I mean, so I am very careful to say, you know, just because an evil isn't unprecedented doesn't mean it's not an evil doesn't mean that you know there is something genuine here to concern us it doesn't mean that you know we shouldn't be looking for um possible solutions although in this case i am quite skeptical of you know you know responses to the crisis of civility that purport to solve it i actually think that the crisis of civility is kind of co <laughs> co-equal and coexistent with liberal democracy as a regime so once you've solved it you've basically abandoned liberal democracy as a regime um but that i mean that's that's one of the that's one of the arguments of the book it's just we need to be skeptical of um of solutions to problems that seem to be perpetual 
Okay, so let's talk about the sort of the three great um, early modern liberal thinkers that are the central dramatis personae of your book, Thomas Hobbes, John Locke, and Roger Williams. Um, and they each have influential, still influential conceptions of civility and what it demands. Um, and you end up being more critical of Locke um, and more defensive of Williams and Hobbes somewhere in between. So can you just mm -hmm. wa walk us through those three approaches to civility? Yeah, excellent. I mean, so one of the um, one of the main things that motivated the writing of the book was simply just to point out that lots of people appeal to civility as the solution to the kind of problems of uh, a dysfunctional public sphere that we're facing. But of course, you know, to appeal to civility is just to, you know, to, to punt on the interesting question, which is, you know, what do you mean? What do you mean by civility? What counts? So in the book, what I do is point to these three thinkers, not to say that each is particularly influential in the sense that, you know, um, you know, the Hobbes' theory of civility. So, I mean, I do think they're influential thinkers, but mostly because I see them as in their understandings of civility, sort of capturing the three main positions possible about what you could mean um, when you appeal to the concept of civility as a solution to um, to what I call in the book the disagreeableness of disagreement. And already there, um, you know, one of the things that attracts me to the 17th century to try to answer or try to you know think about the problems that we're facing today is precisely because all of these thinkers, you know, it's true I do side with Williams against Locke and and, and against Hobbes in the book, but I think that all of them um, are much better than 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 we are today in thinking about what what we mean by civility and, and the kind of problem to which it's offered as a solution. And so it, it's the way I describe it is that they're, you know, they're psychological realists. They understand that the crisis of civility emerges precisely because disagreement as such is disagreeable. And when disagreements are taking place on questions or principles, commitments that we take to be fundamental to ourselves, into our sects or to our identities, then that disagreeableness is exacerbated. And disagreement is disagreeable precisely because, um, as Hobbes puts it in, in De Kive, um, to disagree with someone on, on a point is, you know, to implicitly accuse him of reasoning incorrectly. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> to disagree with him on a number of points is to Or in the case of, of Williams, to tell him that he's going to go to hell. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> right, it, right. So it's it's to say that you know to disagree on something that's really really fundamental is is yeah is an implicit accusation, and is taken as such by the person with whom you're disagreeing. And so Hobbes puts it in De Kive, the mere act of disagreement is offensive. And now often you know people come back to me and say, oh well, I don't think that's right. You know, obviously you can disagree without it being disagreeable. But I think that um, but my response is that yeah, no, of course, aspirationally, part of what we do in disagreeing with others and training ourselves to respond to disagreement um, in a different way is to try to try to come to a place where we no longer experience a disagreement as a kind of insult. But I think that Hobbes, Williams, and Locke, in sort of taking that as their starting point, understanding that the natural partiality and pride of every individual to her or himself in our own reasoning, but also to um, his or her own sect, the sort of the group to which she belongs and by, wit by, virtue, by virtue of her membership in, you know, defines her sort of public face or presence. That, I mean, because of that, because of that feature of human psychology, disagreement is always going to be 
difficult and it's always going to lead to this negative affect. And so that, you know, so that I think all Hobbes, Locke and Williams are all starting with that understanding of what the issue is. And then I think Hobbes and Locke, um, their response to that um, is, is, uh, still familiar today. So Hobbes um, advocates for what I call civil silence, which is basically the idea, you know, it's a generalization on the level of society of the idea that you shouldn't talk about politics or religion at the dinner table, right? So if you actually want to get along with other people who think and feel and look and believe very differently than you do, then the obvious uh, instinct then is to, is to crack down on disagreement to say, oh, well, we can differ in any way we like, but a condition of that coexistence is that we not actually speak about um, the things that really divide us. So I describe this as a vision of difference without disagreement um, that seeks to um, silence uh, silence disagreeable disagreements um, and to suppress, basically, to suppress certain forms of uncivil speech for the sake of social harmony. Um, so I mean, so that's that's Hobbes, and then Locke I think um, has a position that instead of suppression, I mean Locke is very concerned, you know, I mean, as he would be um, given his philosophical commitments, but also his personal history, he's very concerned about the suppression of heterodoxy, the suppression of dissent. But he's also very committed to the idea that in order for disagreement to be productive, right? So to actually, you know, not just lead to bitter acrimony and everyone taking their ball and wanting to go home, he thinks that. In order for a disagreement to be productive, the, the participants need to begin from a kind of shared starting point. Um, so, you know, his solution to this is to say, well, you can't actually tolerate all views in a society. You're actually going to have to exclude those views in the name of civility that um, are uh, that that are you know at, at odds with those. Um, principles that you see as foundational to your tolerant society. And here, you know, for Locke, he talks about the principles involved as being, um, you know, the golden rule, a belief in God, as he puts it in a letter concerning toleration, the taking away of God, but even in thought dissolves all, which is why we can't tolerate atheists, according to Locke. But I'm trying to, you know, in, 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 reinterpreting his arguments about toleration in terms of civility, I'm showing that the concern really is, you know, what, what limits do we have to put in place? Whom must we exclude in order for our disagreements to be civil? Right? And so those, so I call his view civil charity. And I actually think that that view is pretty much the dominant one. Um, when we talk about, you know, cries for civility today, it's, it's mostly a sense that people, you know, civility is nominally about the manner of disagreement, but many calls for civility very quickly reduced to the fact saying, you know, it's not just my issue isn't with how you're saying what you're saying. It's with what you're saying. What you're saying places places yourself beyond the pale of our tolerant society. Yeah, yeah, and you know, to give a sort of topical Canadian example, I think about um, there's a proposed Christian law school, evangelical Christian law school, um, mm -hmm. in British Columbia, where I am right now. And one of the requirements proposed is that you signed a, a covenant saying that you'll, it's, uh, the school's called Trinity Western, that you mm -hmm. will refrain from uh, relations outside of those permitted by the Bible. And mm -hmm. the law societies have said, in Ontario at least, we won't, we won't accredit students who, um, who graduate from this law school, because it's one thing if they, 
if they profess to Christian beliefs, but to openly require as an institution, even a private religious institution for students to sign on to this uh, is, mm -hmm. is beyond the pale of the values that as the law society of upper Canada, we will tolerate. Um, so it's it's sort of actually a hybrid between Hobbes and Locke because it's saying we, we have no problem with you, you know, professing to the belief, but putting it in your in your statute goes goes too far. Right. So that's in the, yeah, that's a great example because it is precise. I mean, one of the things I point out in the book is that in a lot of um, 21st century sort of civility talk, the Lockean and Hobbesian vision uh, uh visions converge. So it, we end up in a place where we're pursuing Lockean ends, i.e. a society of, you know, people um, committed to the shared principles of secular liberal democracy and committed to a community of mutual, mutual respect. Um, but then when it comes to how we want to bring that society about, well, we begin to use these um, Hobbesian means of suppressing speech that we can, we deem disrespectful, right? Or, um, or then excluding from the um, great credentialing bodies of, you know, those who will go in to occupy leading places in our liberal democracy, excluding from them people whose views we, we deem, um, you know, at odds with um, what I call, you know, the, the fundamentals of secular liberalism. So into this comes the swashbuckling character of Roger Williams, <laughs> who I confess I'm Canadian. I didn't know very much about before reading your book, but he certainly seems like a colorful gentleman. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's, you know, the most mild way one could put it. And actually your, your, your designating of him as a gentleman here is true. And it's actually really important because so Williams um, was not born a gentleman, but by virtue of going to Cambridge, uh, he received a, a bachelor's, which of course is, you know, quite literally a gentleman's degree in 17th century England. So he's one of these people who through the universities achieves a kind of higher social standing. And then he goes um, to the new world with this reputation of, of not only being a gentleman, but also being a, a, fa a fantastic scholar and a very godly man, right? He, um, he goes through uh, a conversion experience at Cambridge as an undergraduate. He becomes, you know, what we think of today as a Puritan. Um, and as a Puritan who's trying to, you know, follow his conscience in an England that's coming under, under a rising tide of um, basically Arminianism or sort of Anglo-Catholicism under the leadership of Charles I and Archbishop Laud, he's trying to figure out, you know, he decides he can't, he can't be a true Christian in England. And so he, like many other Puritans, um, takes the opportunity offered of moving to the colonies of New England and in particular Massachusetts Bay. Um, yeah, I mean, one of the things that... Before he gets really, the boot, right? Right, exactly. <laughs> because basically, so well. <laughs> yeah, by his own profession, because he's just so obnoxious when he goes to Massachusetts. Yeah. yeah. See, this is what's, I, I, you know, you mentioned as a Canadian, you hadn't heard of Williams. I mean, well, I, you know, I was born in North Carolina and my, my, my parents are not Southerners. My dad's Romanian. You know, we're not, I, I'd never heard of Roger Williams before I went to grad school. Um, and then when I learned of just this, 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 I mean, what is he even? I mean, yeah, he's an obnoxious, uh, but just the learning of this incredible character um, who could not have done what he did or achieved what he achieved in any other circumstances than those in which he happened to find himself, <laughs> namely in the 1630s and 40s in New England, in the wilderness of New England, where um, the different fledgling colonies, so 
um, Massachusetts, and then um, and then what will become Connecticut, and then New Haven, which will be subsumed by Connecticut. It's because of this man meeting this moment that his absolute, just uncompromising um, approach to his faith issues in this incredible um, institutional experiment with what we call you know, free exercise of religion in the colony that will become Rhode Island. So right, and so as you alluded to, so you know, Roger Williams turns up in Massachusetts, it turns up in Boston, his reputation has preceded him, he's a young man, he's, his reputation has preceded him, and so he's done immediately the honor of the, you know, his fellow Puritans in Massachusetts Bay coming to him and saying, young Master Williams, we would, you know, would you please be, take up the position of teacher in our church? And of course, these are Calvinists, so the position of teacher is quite, um, quite an honor. And he just immediately declines. And he doesn't just say no, right? He says, no, thank you. I got, I got other places to be, right? No, no, no. He says, no, I cannot because your church is polluted by the spiritual whoredom (laughs) of Church of England, which is in turn polluted by the Catholic Church. And as a good Protestant, Roger Williams will always refer to the Catholic Church as the anti-Christian church because, of course, it's led by the Pope, who is the Antichrist. So basically, he gets off the boat, he turns down the offer, but on the grounds that you, you, my fellow um, New English, are engaged in anti-Christian pollution. (laughs) Right? I mean, who wouldn't be offended, right? <laughs> yeah, he yeah. truly pulls no punches. He pulls no punches. And, you know, and so he's not immediately exiled. I mean, there's an interesting story about, you know, Williams, for those who know him, tend to, it tends to be considered a kind of hero of um, liberty of conscience and free thinking. Um, you know, he, he's, his conflict with the Puritans of Massachusetts, Massachusetts Bay gets picked up by kind of heroes of liberty of conscience in the 1960s. You want to say, oh, look, he's a free thinker and a radical and those, you know, those Christians in Massachusetts just couldn't, couldn't deal, man. Um, but of course, that's not exactly, that's not what's going on. The thing is, I mean, Williams leaves Boston to move to Salem because, you know, later famous for its witch trials, precisely because he wants to be in a more rigorous and fundamentalist Christian community. He gets in trouble with Massachusetts for arguing, among other things, that women should wear veils, not only in church, but outside of church. I mean, he's, he's an, he's a, uh, he's a man of conscience and it's a really intolerant form of evangelical Christianity. And what's so interesting then, what's so interesting is that he gets exiled eventually from Massachusetts because of his intolerance, because he's, you know, it's because of his uncompromising status in religion, which leads him, by the way, and we might say that, you know, this is probably the the commitment that pushed him over the pale for the people, um, for the denizens of Massachusetts Bay, was that his um, skepticism of the Christianity of the Church of England leads him to accuse uh, Massachusetts of um, dispossessing the American Indians on the fa- basis of a, of a, you know, unholy fraud. He calls the Massachusetts Charter a national sin. Um, because he thinks that it's the claim to the native's land is being made on the basis of, you know, the superiority of the Christian religion by people who are not, in fact, Christians. 
Yeah. And so one of the things that you want to do in your book is push back against um, the characterization of Williams by people like you, you single out Martha Nussbaum as this um, entirely liberal, tolerant, quote unquote, proto multiculturalist. You say, well, exactly. he, he called the new Americans basically um, like barbaric voodoo hippies yeah. <laughs> and, and like if you actually read the things that he says you'll you'll see how how just at odds with the historical record that characterization is exactly yeah I mean I, I do I mean part of the project simply is to redeem Williams I think or to save him from those who've tried to resurrect him before because I think that many times those resurrections take take the form of trying to turn him into something he just he just manifestly was not which is you know a 17th century version of you know that that patron saint of secular liberalism john rawls i mean it's really i mean the concern i i, I have great respect for Mar- martha nussbaum and she's not the only one who's who's you know appealed to williams in this way i have great respect for her i think that i've learned so much from her but i you know in I, I do worry that what ha- you know what happens to Williams and her account is you know verges on a kind of you know academic uh, you know, sort of um, it's almost unethical what's done because you're forcing you're forcing this person into your procrustean bed <laughs> of liberalism in order to say well if he had anything interesting to say if I find this person interesting it must be because he fundamentally believes with me so we can, agrees with me so we just sort of cut out we erase all the god talk because he can't possibly have meant it right and you have this um you have this phenomenon then in modern sort of reissuings of Williams' writings is that all of the biblical quotations are replaced with ellipses. So if you're reading Williams in that format, you know, then okay, sure, then you might conclude, oh, well, he never appealed to religion in arguing for his... in, in arguing for religious toleration. But of course, that, it, it, it's just, that's a, that's a, that's, it, that's a feature or just a product of our own blind spots, right? When it comes to encountering minds and cultures and places that are very different from our own. And, and that, I mean, that itself, I think, kind of illustrates the creeping intolerance in the name of tolerance. Um, that uh, that you know the the past often sorry the present often per, you know um, perpetrates on the past, but then also um, also on other people in the present. Um, so just I mean so w- w- reviving Williams in this way and sort of putting him in conversation with Hobbes and Locke, who are much more familiar figures, is partly just to to tease out and really um, really emphasize his unfamiliarity, just the strangeness of how he's getting to a position that we like to think of as a good, sound, secular, liberal position. Yeah, and so let's talk about that, because as you say, he ended up founding the most Rhode Island, the most, at the time, tolerant society in the world. Mm -hmm. Um, So how does that happen? We have this guy who's this intolerant, sort of bigot, uh, colorful character. So, uh, So what is it about his instinct that leads him to actually, in practice, be in some ways more truly liberal than Hobbes or Locke? Right. So, I mean, and it's not even, it's not simply that... Rhode Island is the most tolerant society going in the 17th century. I mean, it's the it's the most tolerant society going for quite a long time. It's um what's really special about Rhode Island is the fact of disestablishment. So Williams is a disestablishmentarian Christian. He um is fundamentally skeptical of any kind of intermingling between church and state, or as he describes it in his um 
response to John Cotton, um, the you know, the the garden of the church in the wilderness of the world. And he uses the phrase, a wall of separation, which of course, it must be erected between these. And of course, that's the, you know, that that to many modern liberals is our, our rallying cry. But of course, I mean, what Williams is, is arguing is instead something that, you know, that I think that, you know, is live in American First Amendment jurisprudence in a way that it's not in other countries. But the point is that you know separation of church and state is is to protect both from pollution, right? Both the garden of the church and the um, the wilderness of civil society. You know these things are essentially distinct and must be kept separate. Um, but that separation is motivated by a kind of spiritual exactingness and concern with spiritual purity that I think um, many modern liberals find it difficult to understand. And, you know, they describe the, a position like Williams where he's arguing to, um, you know, a kind of liberal position that says that we need to live in a society wherein church and state are separate and that wherein everyone enjoys equal rights regardless of their religious affiliation. So that means that Williams is far more tolerant than Locke, right? You can tolerate American pagans, i.e., you know, the, the Native Americans. You can tolerate um, Muslims and Jews. And of course, um, Jews are in, uh, there's a synagogue in Newport, Rhode Island. I mean, I think it's, it's the first synagogue in, the, in, in North America. And, but then you can also to tolerate Catholics, i.e. anti-Christians, right? So it's for Williams, you know, you, you tolerate every faith and every lack of faith, right? He never says atheists are tolerable explicitly, but implicitly he says a lot that, that says we can tolerate them. But precisely because their spiritual errors are their spiritual errors. And what we need to do is try to persuade them that they're wrong but the conditions of that conversation for us to evangelize or proselytize to them are, as you know, I might to put it in Williams' language, conditions of equal evangelical liberty, i.e., a society wherein everyone enjoys equal rights not only to exercise their religion but also to evangelize for re their religion. So today, what we think of as the freedom of speech, and the and free speech is not associated with religious toleration or indeed with religious freedom anywhere else really <laughs> and certainly not in Europe certainly not in um, many of the other uh, tolerant colonies of, New of North America I mean it's this really strange strange arrangement that nowadays we take for granted but actually you know has a peculiar theology and it's an evangelical theology underlying it yeah um, and and so that's one of the sort of curiosities of of Roger Williams extreme what you would what you call later in your book free speech fundamentalism that it has mm -hmm. a clear sort of goal which is conversion and the quote that you have is whereas he that is a briar a Jew a Turk a pagan anti-christian today maybe when the word of the Lord runs freely a member of Jesus Christ tomorrow right. um, so do you think that his sort of marriage of religious toleration and free speech um, can be transplanted to a secular modern liberal context where we don't have the same end game in mind. Right. So this is, I mean, this is the key question, I think, and it's been 
put to me several times, and I'm not sure that my answer ever really satisfies the questioner. I mean, so I I, I like to talk. I like to describe this combination um, as for, as e- evangelical toleration, right? It's the idea that you tolerate others so as to converse with them um, in the hopes of their conversion. I mean, so I want to be clear just about what, you know, William's theology of conversion is. I mean, he's a real Calvinist, so he doesn't, I mean, he thinks that conversion is something that only the, you know, digitus dei, the, the finger of God can do. But what, what Christians have a duty to do is prepare the ground, so to speak. So what they have to do is witness um, witness uh, against error uh, and in favor of truth, and you know that's that's the duty. That's a duty of charity. Um, so the it's not that toleration is conditional on a kind of sound expectation of the eventuality of the conversion of others. It's not that right. There's a kind of um, open endedness mm-hmm. to the discussion that I think is really crucial. But it is the case <laughs> that from the standpoint of political liberalism, um, you know, it's a, to, to borrow a phrase again from John Rawls, Williams is arguing on the basis of a, you know, a comprehensive doctrine that is not shared, right? You know, so his reasons seem to be theological reasons, and not only were they not shared by everyone in his own society, they're certainly not shared by every um, everyone who counts themselves a member of a secular liberal democracy today. So this question, the question then becomes, you know, so is is it possible to kind of update? Is it possible to transport? I mean, the first answer is simply to say. Well, I don't know that that's actually what I'm calling for. I'm simply pointing out that the origins of the institutions that we take for granted as being secular are, in fact, grounded in a peculiar theology. And so that's just a historical point and a point of interest. And I think it's pretty important to recognize that if we're going to be able to defend our institutions um, against those who point out that, you know, secular liberalism often doesn't seem particularly secular at all. So that's just one point. But the second point is simply to say that I'm skeptical in practice. I mean, not let's bracket the theory question, but I'm skeptical in practice that the distinction between religious or theological arguments and political or secular arguments is actually as hard and fast as we'd like to make it sound. So what do I mean by this? Well, I think that, um, you know, for instance, um, oftentimes religious arguments are caricatured as being based um, always and everywhere on a kind of suspect appeal to authority, right? This authority, particularly of revealed texts in, in Christianity or in Judaism or in Islam. But I mean, it's not, if, if the problem is that, you know, religious religion rests on arguments from authority, it's not really clear that secularism isn't equally reliant on arguments from authority, just for the fact that, you know, given the kind of frail, finite creatures with limited time and scarce resources that we are, we are dependent on the expertise of others and often take on faith you know, the sort of the scientific consensus, if you to take one example, or sort of what are what the leaders of our party are saying, on the idea that arguments could be offered, should we ask for them? Mm-hmm. But not, I think, on the idea that we would understand the, <laughs> the arguments if offered. Yeah. So in a way, I'm, it, it, so I'm not, I don't, I'm not denying a difference, you know, in theory between revelation and science, not at all. But I'm saying in practice, 
and so in practice is precisely what matters for politics and how we and how we live together with those with whom we disagree when we're not shit or no, we don't agree on the relevant authorities. Um, actually looking to religious arguments and how different people argued for toleration from within a religious framework, especially a revealed religious framework, I think can actually really help us understand the wisdom of the institutions that we take for granted. And then finally, just the third point, you know, I'm more interested in how um, citizens of liberal democracies, and of course the American example is the one I know best, but I note similar phenomena in, um, in Canada and in the UK, the way in which citizens comport themselves in democratic disagreement today seems to me to have a lot in common with a kind of enthusiastic evangelicalism of Williams and his ilk. There's an idea that what we do in public is not try to persuade with the force of the better argument those who disagree with us. Rather, we witness against them. And very often we witness against them by, you know, <laughs> calling out their sins, right? Pointing out the ways in which they're unrighteous. And I think that the the metaphor of conversion that's often used to describe sort of, you know, people who... um you know, change from Republican to Democrat or from conservative to liberal or vice versa. The metaphor of conversion actually <laughs> captures this point quite well. Politics, like religion, is about not only believing, but also belonging, right? We understand ourselves in opposition to the other guys, in opposition to the other side. And I, I think that, you know, in Adopting this kind of lens of 17th century religious politics can help us see the ways in which we are, you know, our era is, is also a kind of, you know, is one of creeping sectarianism in political disagreement, but also, um, you know, increasing puritanism, in fact, you know, what we describe of as po polarization in American poly poly party politics is driven by a kind of demand for purity within yeah. the parties. So that's a good um, point to segue to yeah. uh, the last thing I want to touch on, which is, of course, um, this comes up in the context of partisan politics, but also somewhat differently, um, but sort of prominently in campus politics, where the mm. considerations are sort of different because the point of universities is to be sites of learning, at, at least putatively. Um, and I think one of the hallmarks of Roger's conception of mere civility is that it demands that we have a thick skin and that we be, mm -hmm. be prepared to be deeply insulted. Um, and many American campuses seem to not be doing very well with that. Um, I'm thinking, of course, about Middlebury and just recently Wellesley, who uh, the the editorial board of their student newspaper said they will call out hate speech where they see it and that students generally are quote unquote, correct in their attempts to differentiate what is viable discourse from what is hate mm -hmm. speech. Um, so it, it seems, again, like a lot more Hobbes and Locke than Williams. And I think there are a number of cultural factors that are sort of exacerbating this. Um, but as as a professor and as somebody who's spent, I, I guess, most of your life on university campuses, mm -hmm. uh, what's your take on this? Well, I certainly, um, I certainly care deeply about it and am, you know, disturbed by a lot of the recent frock on campuses. I was really disturbed by Middlebury. I'm sort of, and I'm, I'm sort of <laughs> perhaps more disturbed by those who are not disturbed by what happened well, at I Middlebury. Well, I mean, people like masked themselves and physically assaulted, um, yeah. Alison Stanger. It was, it was 
it was vandalism, basically. They also vandalized uh, Murray's car. It was very extreme yeah. and physically violent, of course. I mean, so just I, I, to, to say up front, I mean, I care about hate speech. I care about, you know, the, the kinds, you know, I, I'm, I'm fully convinced of the power of words to wound. You know, that's one of the things about the 17th century is that you can see that these arguments in favor of free speech are not being worked out on the basis of a kind of view that speech doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's completely the opposite. It's not mere speech, right? It's the idea that no, the word, the word is a sword, as as Luther puts it. You know, so this idea is the um, it's all motivated by the idea that you know speech is powerful. It powerfully transforms. It transforms men. It transforms society, and it's because of its power that we need to sort of allow the tongue to swing freely, right? The tongue is the sword of Christ's spirit. I mean, but yeah, to, to turn to Middlebury, I mean, it, you know, so I care about hate speech, but I, I also think that any kind of concern we have about the ways in which war, words wound has to be by way of an analogy with, you know, the way in which swords wound. <laughs> and, you know, when you're in a place, as in, I think, you know, the student protesters at Middlebury are, where you're sort of, elevating the harm in hate speech over the harm in physical assault, then really, I mean, you're, you're undermining the conditions of your own, you know, the power of your own metaphor. If you think hate speech is worse than assault, then I, I'm not sure how seriously to take your claim that you're worried that words wound. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, so I... I really think that there's something kind of this, something vaguely Orwellian going on here where we say that um, words are actually worse than deeds when it comes to our vision of a tolerant society. And then the charge of incivility or of hateful speech against those that we see as unrighteous and want to purge from our community. Well, the implication then is, is that, you know, then we, we can, if needs must, use swords or our fists in order to suppress or exclude them from our society. And I don't, I, I don't know that, in fact, many of the students and faculty who sign on to these, you know, mantra or so support the protesters have really thought that deeply about the implications of the position for the kind of commitment to words over swords that, you know, not only liberal societies um, are founded on, but universities in particular. And I, I mean, I would hope that my colleagues, if they were to think more deeply about this, would, would see, would see that they're sort of pulling the rug from out of their own, from under their own feet, in terms of justifying the kind of privileges that we enjoy as members of a university, whether, whether students or staff. And I mean, and just, and on that, that, other, the point about, um, I mean, I, you mentioned the word privilege, so I think that I should say this as well. I mean, one of the things that um, I find so attractive about Williams's understanding of mere civility is, as you say, it's a call for thicker skins and divided selves, which is somewhat, you know, at odds with the tenor of the times. Um, but it also, you know, it's not, I think that I can be mis misunderstood. I mean, mere, mere civility isn't a defense of incivility, right? Like what I find exemplary about Williams is not the fact that he was continually calling his American neighbors devil worshippers or um, Catholics anti-Christians or, you know, you know, he was a really, really virtuoso, vir virtuosic when it came to religious insult. I don't actually think that Williams saw himself as insulting 
people. I mean, I think he knew that they would find his words offensive, but his point wasn't to insult. His point was to witness, right? To call a spade a spade and say, you know, if if my view of your religious uh, commitments is true, then you are engaged in devil worship, and that makes you a devil worshiper, right? It's not. There's a kind of a propositional <laughs> logic in that. Um, but what? It, but the the core of mere civility is that you know. So you shouldn't wantonly insult others. You shouldn't try to wound others with your words. That's not the point. Mm-hmm. But it recognizes that civility makes demands on listeners as well as speakers, right? So what's in our control is how we respond to being insulted. And William's point is that in a tolerant society, you must tolerate others' incivility. You must tolerate their insults. And it's not because their words aren't wounding. It's not because, you know, the speech is... uh, is not a problem. It's because in order to preserve the character of your society as one of toleration and of equal liberty, you must be prepared to tolerate the disagreeableness of the disagreement that will that will ensue. And this language of privilege, right? You know, I, I, I'm, you know, where we say people um, need to acknowledge their privilege, or very often I think the the discourses of hate speech and, and perspectival privilege have gone together, where so hate speech seems to be a semantic point about, you know, um, the content of what's said. Now at Middlebury and Wellesley, you can see that actually hate speech is being construed more broadly as any speech that's sort of, you know, any any naive speech from the from a privileged perspective that doesn't acknowledge its own privilege, right? And so in a way, I think that, that you know, there's a way in which this is reconcilable with mere civility that to say that, well, worrying about privilege, you know, sort of the, uh, the perspective that we bring to society is at its best, or, you know, what it could be is a kind of counsel to humility, mm-hmm. to epistemic humility, sort of, you know, not, not, not taking for granted the soundness of your own conclusions, the soundness of your own convictions or views. But of course, this is precisely the opposite of how it's being used in campus debates. So, you I mean you cited the Wellesley's the Wellesley statement, this idea that we, you know, that the the we're we're convinced we're certain that the you know the judgment of Wellesley students to be able to distinguish between you know hate speech and 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 respectful speech you know that our 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 taste is sort of adequately developed. I mean that's a kind of stunning arrogance. I think. Yeah, I mean it's, it's like logic one hundred and one fail, right? Like we know that we're right because we know that we're right. <laughs> and I mean, and that claim, that claim, and to go back to one of your earlier questions, that claim is not that far off from the kind of claims of enthusiastic evangelical Christians in the 17th century to have a kind of privileged access to truth by virtue of their special relationship with God. I mean, and how it functions in an argument then is simply as an appeal to authority. We know better by virtue of our epistemic position, mm-hmm. right? And so when people kind of, you know, wring their hands about an advent or an increase in ad hominem in American political disagreement. I want to say the the kind of this, I, this standpoint epistemology that says that the problem is privilege or that, you know, that people enjoy privilege, um, purpose, uh, epistemic privilege by virtue of their position in society. That that means that you ca- that, that all arguments become arguments by competing authority. And the only way to win an argument then is to Argue ad hominem, yeah. <laughs> i.e., to question the status of your opponent as a knower 
Um, and so that's why you see increasingly all of these arguments couches as a woman, as a member of X group, as a whatever, or in all attempted refutations and say, well, as a white man, as an American, as these things, you can't possibly know what you're talking about. You lack the authority. Yeah. And I mean, as an academic, I find this deeply disturbing for precisely you know, the idea that argument must be possible in which you know, it's possible to persuade others, not just commit them to, um, to yoke their, their mind to another authority. Um, yeah, I find it, I find it really disturbing, but I, I think, I mean, I'm actually a kind of opt optimist on this, that, um, that as the kind of implications of this view, um, become more and more common on campuses that, you know, that many, many good colleagues who have been sort of signing on in good faith because they quite rightly want to support their students. They care about claims to exclusion and, and everything else. They, they will begin to realize that in the name of inclusion, in the name of equality, what we've done is turned universities into terribly exclusionary places in which there's a kind of hierarchy of, you know, those whose hurts count by virtue of, you know, their ascriptive identities and those who don't. I mean, it's a kind of um, funhouse mirror yeah. version <laughs> of uh, what a tolerant society must look like. Yeah. Okay, so last question is about you as a thinker and a scholar, and if you can name one book or thinker that has influenced your thought and why. Oh, jeepers. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I was thinking about this, um, and it's you know the, the the trouble is always choosing the one, right? So I was thinking that um, rather than cite you know just a text or a thinker um, or an idea, I would point to a particular text, a particular author, and a particular teacher mm -hmm. <laughs> as uh, as being formative for me. So I went to the University of Chicago as an undergraduate, um, which you know I was. I come to appreciate more and more as I get older and older and experience many different universities. But I went to the University of Chicago and I was lucky enough um, in my first year there to uh, take a course called, well, two courses. So one called Classics of Social and Political Thought, which was taught by Eric McGilvery, who's now a professor at Ohio State, and he's just fantastic. But then the counterpart to this in humanities was a course called Human Being and Citizen. And um, the first text that we read together in that class was um, Homer's Iliad. Of course, I, you know, I, I knew, you know, even translated into English, it was all Greek to me, right? It just seemed like this completely alien text, an alien world. And the teacher um, the was... The slave girl and the rape and right, what's going right, on exactly. with this. Like, Achilles so, like, how is so many, weird. <laughs> you know, and as an 18-year-old girl reading this, I'm like, how many tripods am I worth? Yeah. You know? <laughs> that sort of... <laughs> you really talk about alienating yourself from the from the institutions and ideas you take for granted. Um, but the professor for that course was James Redfield, who's been a long time professor at Chicago. And, you know, just in the middle of one class at one point, he was like, oh, I don't really like this translation here. So he just pulled out his dog-eared copy of the Iliad in Greek from his lapel pocket. And of course, the, the coat was tweed, right? Mm -hmm. So just pulls it out and starts spontaneously translating <laughs> from the Greek. And of course, That's I'm very, right. very difficult to do. Well, exactly. You know, and I hear my jaw on the floor. And, and I was thinking like, so it was, it was not simply a confrontation with um, a work that's on the one hand kind of 
claimed by so-called Western civilization as our own, right? You know, so Homer, right, is it's Western. But of course, once you, under, once you think of Homer in relation to what we think of as Western civilization, he couldn't be farther <laughs> from the ideas and institutions we take for granted. So that's a, right. So a text that really alienates you from your assumptions about the world and your place in it. But then also just the, the, the experience of having that text opened up to me by a really virtuoso teacher. And here I'm going to use a word that's quite controversial in the context of universities nowadays, but I'm going to use it in order to be controversial. But really, Professor Redfield in that instance was an example of mastery, mm-hmm. right? He was a master of the material, a master of the Greek. And that his kind of, you know, that mastery was then actually very liberating for students in that course to kind of say, oh, right, people know more than we do and we can learn from them. Right. And it was just this amazing experience. And I, I mean, I just I, I'm thinking about that story more and more because I think the idea of mastery is kind of fallen on hard times within the university. But I think that that um, recognition of the kind of the authority of, of, of those who know over those who do not in this particular context, in the context of the university, that's a kind of hierarchy that's actually essential to the kind of equality we enjoy as citizens. Um, and I think it's really precious and something, you know, that I appreciated was pretty, I appreciated at the time, but didn't really quite understand until. Well, uh, that, that, that contrasts quite well with what you just said about sort of identitarian categories of, I, I have authority to speak because I'm a woman or because I'm a mat. No, right. he, Professor Redfield was a master because presumably he spent decades studiously <laughs> learning Greek. I mean, the rules of accentuation, I mean, that's just hard discipline, which in theory is available to anybody um, who has the wherewithal and the patience and and obviously the raw right. intelligence. Right. No, and that's that's the thing, right? It's, yeah, exactly. He, it, it, but decades of, of studying the languages, but also studying, studying and teaching these texts, you know, and, and that kind of recognition, you know, but the, the claim to authority in that case is not a claim to infallibility, right? (laughs) It's not, you know, he would always say, you know, oh, I've read these books, you know, a number of times, and I'm always changing my mind. Um, And, you know, and I experienced that with my own students. It's, you know, it wasn't until the 10th time that I'd read and taught The Republic that I had any inkling (laughs) as to what that book was about. And of course, I I lack the language skills to actually... complicated book anybody who you know thinks says that they get it after one reading is just kidding themselves and probably read the cliff's notes exactly and it's that point is that point about the the university as a space in which we learn to be humble we humble ourselves um and so open the possibility of ennobling ourselves and and i know that Many of my colleagues, and indeed, you know, myself as a kind of, you know, democratic American, you know, a a, a lover of Melville and all the rest. I mean, like, sorry, maybe I should say twain. But that idea that, you know, we occupy the positions that we do within the kind of institution that we do by virtue of the fact that we've put in years working towards achieving a doctorate. And I don't know how you square that ethical choice with the denial of 
a kind of um, nobility or importance to knowledge. You know, I always I always like to frame this to to my students as you know, it, it, the 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 idea of a university is sort of predicated on the natural superiority of no of, of knowledge over ignorance. That it's better to know than to be ignorant. And that, I mean, part of that process, of course, going back to Socrates, is the skepticism and humility about any claim to actually possessing knowledge. Um, but that's why, you know, Socrates is, is emphatic that the first step to knowledge is, uh, is, is acknowledging one's ignorance. Right. And that, yeah, and that just, I, I don't know, I don't, where, I don't know where you find that today in the modern university. Um, I mean, I don't know, you, hopefully you can find it in my, in my classroom on occasion. Yes. Well, certainly, um, everybody should read Mere Civility. It's an outstanding book, and it's very colorful and a very meticulous excavation that is both historical and constructive, and I highly recommend it. Um, So thank you so much for chatting, uh, Teresa. Thank you so much for having me. It's a real real honor and a a true pleasure. (laughs) Thank you. So thank you for tuning in. Again, you can find us at runningneedssociety.ca where you can also link to all of our social media, see uh, what we have planned coming up, donate if you would like, please subscribe to this podcast and leave a review. Um, And the main thing I want to flag is that we are now accepting applications for our 2017 Summer Student Leadership Conference, um, which should be excellent. So applications are open to all current Canadian law students. Um, So thanks a lot and uh, see you next time.